Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be joined in studio by Professor Spinia Bernardi, Head of the Functional Foods Research Unit in the Department of Biotechnology and Consumer Sciences at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology, and Professor Moretta Opperman, who's a researcher in the same unit. And we'll be chatting about a new novel patented food supplement called Omega Caro E. Cardiologists from African countries recently attended the second Pan-African Congress, focusing on how to integrate minimally invasive cardiac procedures into the African environment to that optimum oscular va- excuse me, so that optimum cardiovascular care is possible throughout the continent. Joining me to tell us more, I'll be speaking with Dr. Tom Mabin, and he's a cardiologist in private practice at Mediclinic Fergelegen in Somerset West, and his special interest is in interventional cardiology. He also pioneered some of the interventional techniques which are being used today. He's also past president of the South African Society of Cardiovascular Intervention, which conducts seminars and congresses on a regular basis. And then the Thai New Year was celebrated recently, and this is a celebration of new beginnings and goodwill towards others. Simply Asia Thai Food and Noodle Bar is continuing this tradition here in South Africa, and they've partnered with the Lunchbox Fund to feed hungry children across the country. Sue Wildish of the Lunchbox Fund will be joining us a little later, and she'll be filling us in on the amazing work done by this NGO. And finally this evening, I'll be chatting with Kelly Duplessis, founder and chairperson of Rare Diseases South Africa, about the work they do and their ongoing fundraising initiatives. And in fact, they're heading off tomorrow for the Dash to Durban. And then just a reminder that there's a list of available documents for Health Matters. Just go to Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. If you'd like any of those, post a message on Facebook. But please do remember to include your email address so I can send them to you. And if you don't have access to Facebook, you can drop me an email to healthmatters at safm.co.za. And I'll send you the list and then you can choose which of the documents you'd like to have. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. Omega Caro E is a new novel patented food supplement, and it's the only food supplement to have received the Cancer Association of South Africa's Smart Choice Supplement endorsement in the 80 years of the organization's existence. To tell us more, I'm joined in studio this evening by Professor Moretta Opperman, and she's a researcher at the Functional Foods Research Unit in the Department of Biotechnology and Consumer Sciences at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. And also joining us is Professor Spinia Bernardi. He's head of the Functional Foods Research Unit. Good evening to both of you. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Good evening. Right, this omega-3, uh, omega-3, Caro E, what is it? If you could just explain some of the research that's gone into this and some of the benefits behind this, Professor Bernardi. Well, actually, it was born, the whole concept was born about 20 years ago on work that uh, at that time I've done in KwaZulu-Natal on school children. And what we'd been using was this product from we obtained from Malaysia. And we introduced that into a biscuit and we fed that to school children and we observed some of the fantastic results that we got on these children, especially in, in terms of skin diseases and skin ailments and also the children's attention and so on. It uh, impresses really in such a way uh, the way that really impressed us was that the mothers eventually came to the school and they wanted to know where can they get the stuff that the children get in the school because they would like to give it to the children at home. Now that gave us a good idea of how where to start. 
And because of all the research that's been done <coughs> on especially fish oil at that time, we decided to, to look at the possibility of introducing uh, omega-3 omega fatty acids into, the, into a capsule form, what we call a three-in-one. And all the ingredients in this product that we eventually developed are vital for human health. Uh, it does not, the body can't make it, it has to obtain it from the food, but the fact is that we do not eat all the good foods that contain these components. And the three components, the three components in this is actually omega-3 fatty acids obtained from fish oil, then there are the carotenoids, these are the colored pigments that we find in certain orange colored fruit and vegetables, and then of course the vitamin E, which we find in especially in vegetable oils. Now all these components play a very vital role in human health and the promotion of health, and many studies have been done to show the advantages of these oils in, in, uh, in humans. And that is what gave us the idea to come up with a new product which is unique. There is no similar product available on the world market. And uh, we came up with this product because we thought it was quite unique, containing all three in one. If you want to take vitamin E, people, you don't have to buy a separate capsule for vitamin E and a, se sick, uh, a separate one for carotenes. Uh, or a separate one for, for fish oil, getting the omega, uh, that's why we call it omega, for the omega-3 uh, omega fatty acids. The caro was for the carotenes and the E was for the vitamin E. That's where the name comes from. Now, we, we obviously, as you mentioned, we don't eat enough of the right types of food to get all this goodness into our bodies every day. We're supposed to eat certain things every day. We don't. What would we have to eat? every day to be able to get the same benefits as we would from one of these capsules? Um, in terms of, of fatty fish uh, and better sources of herring, mackerel, anchovies, uh, salmon, poultry, sardines, you have to eat at least 250 to 280 grams per week. In other words, two to three portions of fatty fish per week. Um, to get the necessary carotenes in, we have to consume at least five colored fruit and vegetables every day. You see, well, we don't do that. We don't the do that. The fish we could kind of manage. The fish sounds manageable, yeah. but that five every day, I mean, I don't think anybody does that. Yeah. Well, the uh, people do not, there's a lot of people that actually don't eat fish or like fish, you know. So, um, and the fruit and vegetables is also a problem. The Americans actually says that you, or say that you should, take in between seven and nine. Oh, they're even more. Even yeah. more, yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. okay. So yeah. there's a lot of stuff we'd have to eat yes. to be able Port to get Portions that. a day. Portion, yeah, portions wow. per day. And the vitamin E you find in your in canola oil and sunflower oil and olive oils and those type of oils. Um, and we tend to eat, um, not consume a lot of the healthier oils like the olive oil and the canola oils every day. Because those are the more expensive oils. So Canola oil, not necessarily. Well, the, the olive oil. The olive possibly, oil, yes. yes, mm. yes. I've been okay. noticing on the shelves things like avocado oils. Are those also as good? Yeah, avocado oil is also a good oil to take. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think in terms, especially what we are interested in and what we have seen, I think this is a worldwide thing, especially in USA. We have observed that in South Africa, 
there is a relative vitamin E deficiency in people. And vitamin E, we know, plays a very cardinal and a very important role in nervous, in, in, uh, in neural development, brain development, maintaining the brain function, and so on. And they, in, we have seen in the Eastern Cape that we've uh, recorded about 70% of the children are vitamin E deficient. Sure. And in America, in the USA, they reckon 90% of the Americans do not take the required amount of, of vitamin E in per day. And a, a publication that I've, I've uh, came across this morning is that 70% of pregnant women do not take in, in enough vitamin E. And this is very important in the brain development of the children and also, you know, the resistance to disease, especially for to the unborn child. Now, as I, was, I mentioned in the beginning that this is the first type of thing, this first supplement that's ever been endorsed by the Cancer Association in 80 years of their existence. Why did they go with this one? Right. Um, we've actually gone through a lot of rigorous, rigorous evaluations sorry, um, done by cancer on all the components that uh, were present in Omega Caro E. They've looked at uh, where we uh, source our components, the credibility of our service providers, the whole manufacturing process, certificates of analysis, safety of the container. Wow, um, everything. Everything, <laughs> collection of apl uh, applicable literature, clinical research, and so on. So, um, and also the, the components within Omega Caro E are known for the anti-inflammatory uh, properties. Um, and we, kn we know that low-grade chronic inflammation in the human body uh, is responsible to a great extent for the development of disease. And these components or similar components to the omega E, the omega-free fish oils, carotenes, vitamin E, they have anti-inflammatory properties and therefore they reduce inflammation in, in the human body, indirectly then helping to reduce uh, the risk of certain diseases such as cardiovascular disease and cancer. Now, it's, it was initially when it was first launched only available from the Cancer Association. Now, no longer? No, we try to have it distributed as widely as possible. And we are in the process, you know, getting a new product into the market takes some time and it's a very slow process. But we are in the process of distributing it into pharmacies and so that it will be available to everybody. More widely available yeah, than we are. That's yeah. But I'm sure if people are interested, they could go onto the Cancer Association's <coughs> website. I'm sure there'll be some information if they can't find it wherever they are. Yes, they, they can, they can. But it's also available in clicks at the moment, um, as well as in alpha forms uh, all over South Africa and then from the Cancer Association. Okay. Now, I was reading some information that there were clinical trials which was testing the absorbability of the combination of the elements within this omega caro E. Has that been done? Is that still ongoing? Yes, we've done a study in the Eastern Cape where we introduced the same component of the same of, of formulation that we use in the, in the capsule, but not the, the, the omega oils, but the caro E. And uh, we introduced that in a biscuit and we fed that to school children oh, right. in the Eastern Cape. Mm. And we did measure an increase in the blood levels of all these different components uh, that we introduced into the biscuit. Uh, Professor Opperman has done a clinical trial on humans where, in fact, we gave them uh, capsules to drink the omega caro E capsules. And maybe she can elaborate on that. Yeah, we've seen actually seen very good absorption of the components into into human blood. 
Um, however, we have not written up the results and published it, so I cannot let <laughs> give you too it's much information. Too early now, but it is ongoing and the trials are all happening. And Correct, yes. All, yeah. and we are I'm, sort of, I'm sort of wondering yeah. why this isn't being dished out to all the kids. I mean, they should all be getting this. How, how many of these should we be taking a day? Just right. one or two, or how does it work? Well, we, you know, there are different international recommendations, but I think the general recommendation of the omega of, of the omega fatty acids, you should take in about five hundred milligrams a day, and this is this is what exactly our cap two capsules will contain. So you will take deliver two a day. Two two a day, uh, that will deliver two hundred uh, five hundred milligrams of of uh, omega E. Uh, omega-3 uh, fatty acids, it will deliver also about 20 milligrams of vitamin E, which is a daily recommended uh, uh, amount. And then, of course, it will also deliver about 6 milligrams of carotenes, which, of course, is the, what one is supposed to get from about your 5 to 7 portions of, of vegetables, green and, and uh, orange-colored vegetables per day. Now, people listening to this thinking, but I eat enough vegetables every day. Would this be a problem for them if they took this on top of what they were eating? Not really. What makes us very excited is there's uh, recently a, a, an article being published, a very w big study in the U.S., where in fact, and this is what we also found in our studies, in, in both in the Eastern Cape and on the, in the clinical trials, what came out there is that in all the people using this, this uh, component uh, or taking in the, the omega or the caro-E, the, caro the carotenes in, there was an elevation or the increase in the levels of alpha-carotene is only one of the carotenes in the capsule. And a recent study has proved that if you have an elevated level of alpha carotenes, you can get as much as a, a different uh, uh, a decrease in, in risk for certain diseases, up to about 40%, of wow. which cancer is one. Uh, for example, uh, it has been reported that there's a 32 percent uh, reduction in, in, in prostate cancer uh, prevalence, a minus uh, a, a, a decrease of 37% in uh, ischemic stroke, in other words, bleeding of uh, in the brain bleeding, and 20% uh, change and 42% in respiratory illnesses. So this has got very vast health effects in, in humans, and this is one of the major components of our capsule. That's incredible. I'm sort of thinking, you know, I, we, we were in America many years ago and I was quite amazed mm. to see it was the middle of winter, went into a shop and we bought these gallon things of milk and it had a big sticker on the front that said vitamin D enriched. Obviously, they weren't getting enough vitamin D there, yes. so they were putting it in the milk. Yeah. We should be putting this in the food. I'm just wondering why this isn't added. I mean, you're giving it to children in biscuits. We should have yeah. this in something by the sounds of it. Well, um, you, you can't really put <laughs> no, no, put but fish just, oil in food in no, this. No, but it just sounds like the, the ideal yes. thing to do. Yes, 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 of course it is. But um, look, then you have to eat that amount of fish and um, fruit and vegetables every day, which can be done. And which it's actually um, uh, a better choice at the end of the day than, than capsules. But if you can't... But uh, realistically, we aren't yeah, doing it. Then, then the capsule can, can, can contribute to your daily intake. 
However, um, one also just need to remember that food supplements are never magic bullets. It's just a supplement and something to add to your diet. It's not in place of a healthy diet. We can't think, well, we don't have to eat any more vegetables or any more no. fish. We'll just take no. a pull. No. Because, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. Fruit and vegetables mm. has many other good things mm. like the fiber and, and many other things as well. So I, I think also what it can help, especially is not so much what you eat, but it can also supplement your diet. And if you do not eat enough, uh, I, uh, we do not consider this as a cure no. for any disease. It makes up a shortfall it, almost. Well, it makes up a shortfall, but we would advise people to start young and make sure that they eat correctly and then, of course, to look more, um, merely look at the long-term effects of such a behavior or such a lifestyle. Then uh, this is not like an aspirin. If you got a headache, yes. you take an aspirin, the headache will disappear. We never claim it will cure anything, but it can, from the literature and from all the science behind it, it does reduce the risk for certain diseases if you elevate your blood levels. So it can actually help. Well, I've learned a lot. Thank you both so very much indeed for joining me on the show this evening. And I hope my listeners have found this as fascinating as I have. And, um, yes, I think I'll be making up a shortfall because I certainly don't get through enough fruit and vegetables. The fish side, I don't have a problem with it. It's that fruit and vegetable amount every day that doesn't quite make it onto my plate, unfortunately. So thank you both very much indeed for your thank time you. this evening. Thanks. Thank you very much. Professor Spinier-Bernardi is head of the Functional Foods Research Unit in the Department of Biotechnology and Consumer Sciences at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. Technology, and Professor Moretta Opperman, who is also a researcher in the same unit. If you'd like to find out more about this, there is a website you can visit, but it's quite a long one. So if you're interested, drop me an email to healthmatters at safm.co.za and I'll forward the link to you. Because if I give it to you now, you'll be running for a pen, you won't get the whole thing and you'll miss half of the address. So drop me a mail to healthmatters at safm.co.za. Owing to the overwhelmingly positive response to SAFM's playwriting competition, the number of entries far exceeded our expectations. In order to afford the judges time to give due consideration to each entry, the announcement of the winners will now be on Monday, the 1st of June. I'm Ashraf Ganza and I host the media at SAFM show, Sundays 9 to 11 a.m. It's your two-hour free on-air consultation in brand communication. Health Matters with Karen Key. With cardiovascular disease now leading, being the leading cause of death in sub-Saharan adults over the age of 30, minimally invasive non-surgical cardiac interventions can play a critical role in prolonging and saving lives. And they also make economic sense, as you can well imagine. However, and there's always a however in stories like this, skilled personnel and facilities are woefully deficient in the public healthcare sector throughout the continent. And joining me now is Dr. Tom Mabin. He's a cardiologist in private practice at Mediklinik Vergelechen in Somerset West. His special interest is interventional cardiology, and he pioneered some of the interventional techniques which are still used today. He's past president of the South African Society of Cardiovascular Intervention and they conduct seminars and congresses on a regular basis. Dr. Mabin, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me. It's rather an alarming sort of thing when you think that so, it sounds like as if it could be quite simple to sort this problem out, but yet there is this big stumbling block in the way of a lack of facilities, a lack of personnel. How are we going to resolve this? I think the basic problem is that a lot of it has been driven by technology and 
Um, as one might expect in most of the third world countries, technology is difficult to come by. It's expensive and uh, the developments are a little bit slow to take place um, because interventional cardiology or uh, minimally invasive cardiology is very much a technology-driven science, and I think that really explains why it's been difficult to get it going in the rest of Africa. I was, I was reading some information where it said that if the, the building is available to house a cath lab, the main cost is the machine, and the minimum cost of one of these machines is 400000 US dollars. I mean, that's an awful lot of money. Yeah, I think that's probably a little bit exaggerated as there are more cost-effective models available, but it requires not just the uh, capital to set it up, but also the uh, technical infrastructure and backup to keep it going and keep it running. So that has been a lot of the challenges that there are. Cath Labs been set up and sponsored by international uh, companies and and, uh, and sponsored uh, industry, but they haven't been able to maintain them, and so a lot of them are lying redundant, which is a great pity. Now, we're talking about minimally invasive procedures here, cardiac procedures. What exactly are we talking about for listeners out there to understand what it is we're talking about? Okay, look, it evolved uh, a good 20, 30 years ago, whereby we've been able to access various parts of the heart through um, arteries, usually in the leg or in the arm, and able to run through the arteries. As they say, all arteries lead to Rome and all the arteries lead to the heart. So with the the use of uh, improving technology, we've been able to access blocked arteries in the heart. We've been able to access blocked valves in the heart, access leaking valves, access congenital defects that kids are born with holes in the heart, etc. And as the time has gone by, it's been become more and more sophisticated. But basically, it's accessing the heart through a small pinhole uh, artery in the leg or the arm. That's it in essence, and hence avoiding major open-heart surgery. So, in fact, a lot of the minimally invasive cardiology um, has replaced complex cardiac surgery in most parts of the world, and even in many parts of Africa. They're still able to do quite a lot of this stuff without having too much sophisticated information. But in essence, it's basically accessing the heart through a small hole in the artery. And I mean, this makes a huge difference, though, because obviously the hospital stay is shorter, the cost is less, time of work is less, because it's not as big of an operation as it would have been in the old days, having open heart surgery. There's no doubt that's true. I think um, it's access, you introduced it in terms of adult work, but in fact, Mm. the pediatric work in the the in sub-Saharan Africa, is probably even more valid. Small kids that normally would have major surgery to close holes in the hearts, etc., are now being treated uh, through local local anesthetic procedures and they're out of hospital within a day. So it has had an enormous improvement. The cost-benefit is still coming to, to fruition simply because a lot of this technology is still expensive. How many of these cath labs do we have here in South Africa? We have about 50. Um, and the general consensus is there should be probably one per 500,000, half a million to a million population. So we're about halfway through what would be the normal European standards or American standards, which probably a little bit over-exaggerated. But if I tell you we've got 50 in South Africa, they're not even 50 for the rest of Africa combined. Really? Yep. Sure. So the rest of Africa are very way behind us then? Yeah, we are well-served uh, serviced with cath labs and with the interventional cardiology network in this country is very well developed compared to the rest of Africa and I think that's where you got some of this information from that we are attempting as a society to try and promote this and uh, develop it more in the rest of Africa. 
Now, are these cath labs found mostly in the private sector or are there quite a lot in the public health care as well? Oh, I think there are a lot in the public health here, particularly in the university hospitals are, have all got cath labs and all try and do the work that they can. I think initially, a few years ago, it was driven by the private sector because being high-tech and expensive, the government and the new democracy focused on on uh, community medicine and community care. So the development in the hospital hospitals in the state service tended to lag behind, but they very quickly caught up. So I think there's a fairly good complement uh, in the, in the uh, state sector. So what sort of infrastructure is required to actually support a cath lab being in that facility? Well, a cath lab for the layperson is really a specialised radiology x-ray uh, theatre whereby patients are, are put under an x-ray screen which allow us to follow our wires and our balloons and our catheters up through the arteries into the heart. So... It's really a sophisticated X-ray piece of X-ray equipment. It's got to be housed in a X-ray uh, radiation-proofed laboratory. It needs a fair amount of uh, technical monitoring equipment so we can see the ECG and monitor the heartbeat and the pressures, etc. As you say, I would imagine the whole thing is about about 20 million rand. You said 400,000 US dollars, 20 million rand, and that includes housing it, the equipment, etc. It also requires, of course trained staff to run it, cardiologists, nursing sisters, radiographers. So it's quite a sophisticated unit. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the staff that was going to be needed to, to be able to run one of these things. And I would imagine there would be specialized staff so they would only be focused on that one particular area within the hospital, for example. Yeah, obviously the cardiologist will be an interventional cardiologist. Mm. Not all cardiologists are or choose to practice as interventionists, but a normal uh, cath lab would have uh, probably two highly trained nursing sisters a technologist and a radiographer to run the equipment. And that would be the basic staff requirement. So, it, as you said, there are 50 in South Africa at the moment. And are we looking at developing more? And also, how is, does it balance out between the cities or the towns and the rural areas? Are there enough of these out in the rural they're, areas? They're distributed, unfortunately, because a lot of them driven in the private sector have, mm. been, have been driven on the basis of availability of cardiologists who tend to stay in the urban centers where most of the heart disease, certainly the adult and coronary artery diseases, is situated. So there are many areas in South Africa that are not well serviced. A lot of these procedures like uh, infants and uh, pediatric work and some of the adult work can be done uh, at an arm's length away and patients can travel to have it done. The emergency work and some of the real impact in terms of coronary work is done in patients who have heart attacks with a blocked artery, and there's no question now that the greatest advantage of interventional cardiology is to treat heart attacks as quickly as you can. So if you're based, uh, you know, uh, 24 hours away from a cath lab, your opportunities of getting the best treatment available are fairly limited. So it depends what you're meeting with, but there are very many areas in this country which are uh, remote from cath labs because they are focused in the urban areas. Cape Town, Johannesburg, Pretoria, um, Durban, and they have a cath lab now in East London, Port Elizabeth. But the rest of the centres, uh, I mustn't forget Bloemfontein, of course, they'll never forgive me, but <laughs> the rest of the centres are pretty remote. Now, I mentioned that you've just we just hosted in South Africa the second Pan-African Congress focusing on how to integrate minimally invasive cardiac procedures into the African environment. Yes. Uh, how did that actually go? What were the outcomes of that Congress? It's been something we try to focus on for a couple of years and trying to uh, attract more uh, uh, participants from sub-Saharan Africa, and I think uh, we succeeded. This has been our second 
combined meeting. It's done in collaboration with a major interventional uh, teaching program in Europe, based in Paris. And uh, we had, a, I mean, the, the second year has been a great success. We attracted a large number of participants, cardiologists and other uh, allied professionals to our meeting two weeks ago. We tried to involve them as much as we could in the program, and we're learning a lot about the challenges that they have in setting up adequate services. I mean, there are certain centers in sub-Saharan Africa that are well-equipped. I mean, Nairobi being one, Sudan, there's a cat lab, uh, a functioning cat lab in Uganda. Um, so there are areas where it is available, but we're learning a lot about what needs to be done to help them, and we hope to carry on promoting that sort of activity. And what about training in this field? How, is, how does that work? Well, cardiology training is quite uh, quite uh, uh, prolonged in this country. One has to do basic medical training, do one house jobs, community service in four years as a specialist physician and another three years, four years as a cardiologist. So it's a long way to getting the adequate training done, and I think that is what's required in this country. I think the requirements in other countries may be different and maybe a little foreshortened, but it's Quite a highly specialised field. I was referring to actually being operating in a cath lab. Is for a cardiologist? Is it a, a sort of a separate study field? Do they have to do what you just described, but then add on something else, or would all cardiologists? Well, that's all part and parcel of your specialisation. The cardiologists we're all taught certain interventional techniques, and it depends on your f- in your field of interest whether you'll pursue that or do other uh, other aspects of it. Yeah, I was just... But that's that's the total. I was just wondering if, if more cath labs were going to be put up around the continent, um, if there were going to be people, cardiologists, trained in that sort of field to be able to work. Yeah, I wish there was this critical shortage of trained cardiologists. In this oh, country, just generally. It is for South Africa, mind for the rest of Oh, Africa. really? Oh, gosh. Why, why is that? Well, it may it's be a long ho- limited uh, training posts available in the universities. Oh, okay. And also probably it's probably only producing about... Um, Six to twelve cardiologists per year. Good heavens! So we're grossly uh, under uh, 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 under serviced with cardiologists. There's about 120 total in this country to service a population of 50 million. Good grief! Okay. I'm getting old very quickly. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> and also, just sort of the, the the interview before you was talking about eating healthily and eating the right foods. Maybe we should all start doing that, and then hopefully the heart disease would not be as bad as it is. Well, that'll be bad for business. Yes. Well, okay. Sorry. We are dealing with the end stage of heart disease, and I think there's no question that priority has to be primary care and try and promote mm. healthy care living and reduce the impact that it's going to make. And I think this Africa is going to see a huge epidemic in, in coronary disease in the next 20 years with the change in lifestyle. The one thing I wanted to ask you before we go is I was reading some information about the latest breakthrough when it comes to stents. Now, I'm sure most people have heard about stents, but there's a brand new thing called a bioresorbable vascular scaffold. Yeah, that's quite technical, Karen. Well done. That, <laughs> um, the, the traditional stent is a metal one made of metal alloys. The feeling is that if you if you can do away with leaving metal inside the arteries for the rest of your life, it would be an advantage. So, the companies are now working on developing stents that are absorbable. In in general terms, plastic stents which are placed inside the artery, open up the artery, and left inside you, but they slowly dissolve. So by about two years down the line, they are completely absorbed, um, absorbed, and the artery is left in its natural state again. So that, I think, is probably the ideal um, uh, target.
target to go for in the long run. So these are very new in development, and I think there will be several models available in the next few years. I think we all got used to over the last however many years about learning about dissolvable stitches, which in itself that at that stage was a big thing. Well, Everything is dissolving now. These stents are dissolving, and by two years they've gone completely. Mm. That's amazing. And as you say, it's far better than leaving a piece of metal or something in your body, you know, Correct. which could cause all sorts of other horrible things to go wrong. But as, as you said, I don't, we don't want to put you out of business, but I think we all need to start looking after ourselves a little better so we don't end up with the heart problems. And um, that, that would actually be, I think, the, f- the first prize. There's no question that's correct. And I think we all, being interventional cardiologists, not our only job, we do practice a lot of preventative medicine and clearly that would be the way to go. Well, let's hope on a national level. Well, yes, and and a continental level as well, because as you said, it's it's a, it's a continent-wide problem. It's a brewing epidemic. Oh, and not not a good one. We don't want to go down that road. Doctor okay. Mabin, thank you so much for joining us and explaining all of that to us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your time. Good night. Dr. Tom Mabin is a cardiologist in private practice at Mediclinic Fechelech in Somerset West. His special interest is interventional cardiology, and he pioneered some of the interventional techniques which are used today. If you'd like to find out more about what the Second Pan-African Congress is all about, you can take a look at the website. It's africapcr.com. Health Matters with Karen Key. Songkran, the Thai New Year, was celebrated recently, and this is a celebration of new beginnings and goodwill towards others. So, in this spirit, Simply Asia, the Thai food and noodle bar, is continuing this tradition here in South Africa and have partnered with the Lunchbox Fund to feed hungry children across the country. Joining me now is Sue Wildish of the Lunchbox Fund. Sue, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. This is a wonderful initiative, and I'm hoping it's going to be really, really good for you. Oh, yes, I hope so. Hold on, will you hold on one second? turn that down to me. Sorry, someone just turned the TV up. Oh We're so excited about it. You know, the whole idea of starting afresh, starting something new, sharing a meal, and giving a child a chance, which is what Simply Asia are basically doing by working with us. It's just a wonderful way to actually celebrate, you know, at the new year for all. The now this this program started on the thirteenth of April and it's running until the thirteenth of May. That's what right. exactly do we as consumers have to go out there and do to help you? Well, what we'd love you to do is to go into your local Simply Asia bar um, between a between Monday and Wednesday, and to order yourself a noodle dish um, upon which you will get another second one for free. And when you have ordered your noodle dish, the Simply Asia folks will donate two rand fifty to us to the lunchbox fund, and we will. That is the cost of a meal that we supply to a child at school during the school day, and we will take that two rand fifty and translate it directly into a meal for a child. So wait, hang so, on. So you said we go into the Simply Asia, we order one noodle dish, and then we get another one for free. That's right. And then they give you two hundred and f- oh no, they give you two rand fifty. Yes. And we, we but we do nothing. All we're doing is getting a free meal. All you're doing is going and eating their delicious food. But you know, like they say, one good feed deserves another. So you're going to be sharing a meal with us, essentially. Yes. That's amazing. I know it's wonderful, isn't it? I thought it's there had to be something. I thought there had them. to be something wrong with this plan. It didn't sound quite right. And <laughs> well, you know, it's Thai Good Year, New Year. Yeah, absolutely. The, the seasons of goodwill to, to others. And also, you know, when Leanne Wadman, uh, the girl from Simply Asia, sorry, the marketing director from Simply Asia first called me, she was very, very interested in doing something in which they were giving back very directly to people in the community. 
So, you know, they wanted something that they would be able to use the idea of nurturing, of sharing, of celebrating, of educating um, by through food. And with us, that's exactly what we do. We take that meal and we serve it to a child at school. It pro- provides a behavioral incentive for the child to go to school and to stay in school and also for the parents to keep the child in school. Because, I mean, you know, I'm sure that you cannot educate or teach a child that is hungry. I know that you focus on education through nutrition. That's what the Lunchbox Fund does. Absolutely. We want to get a child in a position where they can go into a classroom and they have enough fuel in them to learn, enough fuel in them to focus, enough fuel in them to concentrate. And the only way to do that is to provide them a meal. We feed 11,000 children a day at the moment. And for most of those children, it's the only meal they will receive during the day. So tell me a little bit more about the Lunchbox Fund, Sue, and how we can get involved. What can we do to help you? Oh, all right. Well, the Lunchbox Fund was started in 2005 by Topaz Paige Green. um, And she went to a school in Soweto with her ex-favorite teacher from the school she went to. And she noticed that some of the children were separating themselves at lunch break. And she asked the headmistress what was happening. And the headmistress said to her, very matter-of-factly, those children under the tree, they don't have any lunch and they can't bear to watch the others eat. And she said, all right, I have to change that. And that's how the Lunchbox Fund was born. What we need people to do is we need a couple of things. We need people to donate. Um, you know, any NGO always needs to raise money. Um, We can guarantee you that any money that you donate will go directly to feeding a child. We don't take off any bits and bobs along the way. Um, We raise our core costs, our operational costs ourselves through a gala we hold in in New York every year. And that meal will go directly to feed a child. Um, So you can donate money to us via our website, which is www.thelunchboxfund.org. You can go into Simply Asia and treat yourself to something lovely to eat. And they will donate some money to us. Um, and you can get more details about their deal on the Simply Asia website, which is www.simplyasia.co.za. And the last thing that you can do is we have this wonderful app, um, which is downloadable from the Google Play um, and iTunes stores, that, uh, that allows you to take a photograph of a meal at a participating restaurant, share that photograph, and that photograph turns into um, a meal for a child. So, so I mean, it just those, sounds like we just go out there, have a whole lot of fun, and everybody else is benefiting from us having a whole lot of fun. Absolutely. <laughs> Basically. Absolutely. Because food's about sharing. Absolutely. Yeah. And just for those who don't think they don't feel like going out, you can also mm. do a takeaway because 20, you'll get 25% off the cheaper of the two dishes that you order. Anyway, so you, will, you won't get the second one completely free, but you'll get a quarter of the cost of the cheaper one off. And then Simply Asia will still donate the two hundred and fifty to absolutely yeah to the lunchbox so fund. It's just win win, and you get a delicious meal. You know, so it's it's a wonderful, wonderful initiative. Tell me a little bit about how you feed these eleven thousand children every day. That must be quite an undertaking, Sue. It is an undertaking, but we put the responsibility for preparing the food into the hands of the schools and the early childhood development centres that we work with. So what we do is we have a wide range of nutritionally fortified foods that are very easy to prepare, um, and we deliver those on a monthly basis to the school or the, or the creche daycare center, um, and they're cooked there by food bummers, by somebody who's been hired either by the school, the creche, or 
in some in some situations we will assist in hiring somebody. That lady will cook the food at the school, and then the children will all sit down and eat together. Because for a lot of these children, they actually don't get to do that. You know, we've got about um, three and a half million um, orphans in South Africa who are very, very vulnerable. And for them, they don't often get the chance to sit with a family and actually have a meal. The other thing about having people prepare the meal at school is that we know that it's freshly delivered to them. We know that it's very carefully cooked because we choose the feed mummers very carefully. The feed mum is also from the community, so she knows the children. She knows who needs help. She knows who's kind of slipped between the cracks and needs to be lifted up a little bit. She knows if a child doesn't show up to get their bowl of food. So there's a lovely sort of um, holistic approach to what we do. Um, we have a wonderful supplier who helps us by delivering everything to the schools so that they never run out of food. The food is um, a wide range of different ingredients that can be combined in different ways so that there's a rolling menu that children don't get the same thing to eat every single day. And we're always coming up with new things to add. We've just come up with a vegetable stew um, that is, can be reconstituted and, and cooked in one pot because that's another thing you have to consider very often. Our schools are way, way out in very rural areas, and we need to keep the preparation simple. From the, food, from the school's point of view, their responsibility is to source locally grown, inexpensive, easy-to-get vegetables to add to the meals. So whether it's spinach or onions or garlic or butternut or whatever it is, their responsibility is to buy that from the local street vendors and then add that into the meal, which we've seen people... You know, that people do because it's, it's a real idea of getting a whole rounded meal to provide to the children. But what I like about that, though, is you're also then supporting the local community. Absolutely. Absolutely. All of the food mummers are drawn from the immediate local community. So that's the very first thing. They're all previously unemployed women. Um, they are paid a stipend every month, which allows them to spend that stipend back into the community. And the school itself buys from local small businesses, you know, the, the guys who are selling the food in, in, in the community. So you, for an intervention to work, it needs to be by a community for a community. If you go in and you try and impose something that is not sustainable within a community, it's going to fall apart. So we keep it very, very simple. We don't give anybody, we don't at the school level provide money to anybody. We deliver the food. We have field workers who are also drawn from the local communities who go and they monitor that the food has been using, used in the correct way. We visit two or three times a year as well. We have the food mummers who we pay the stipend to. And we have a community buy-in from the parents because there's benefit in it. You know, Karen, for a lot of these parents, it takes a huge economic burden off them because mm -hmm. they can be unemployed or not well or whatever the case is. And at least they know that their child is getting... For the five days a week the child's at school, they're getting a hot meal that day, which allows them to put their resources into feeding them for the rest of the time. So it's a simple intervention, but I think it's a very important one, and it allows everybody to benefit from when, within the community or within the school area that we're dealing with. Sue, I think you do amazing work at the Lunchbox Fund, and thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight. And I hope that this partnership with Simply Asia is greatly successful for you, and that you get to feed a whole lot more children for a lot longer than than you know you had before they came on board with you. So thank you so much for your time this evening. 
Well, thank you very, very much. And please, everybody, go out and have some lovely food at Simply Asia. Yeah, it sounds amazing, definitely. And literally, there's a, it's win-win for you all the way. Absolutely. For so, all of us. Yeah, for all of us. Well, I'm it. saying for yeah. you, I'm talking to the listeners, it's for all of them. It's win-win for all of them. So, yes, absolutely. you know, that's why I was just checking. It didn't sound right in the beginning, but it's because it, it sounded too good to be true, but it is too good to be true. Trust yes. me, it sounds fabulous. Go and do it. It's as good as it sounds. Absolutely. Sue, thanks Thank you. you. Thanks so much. Sue Wildish of the NGO, the Lunchbox Fund, was telling us about the work they do that focuses on fostering education through nutrition. If you'd like to join them in their ongoing efforts, make sure you visit your local Simply Asia store from Mondays to Wednesdays until the 13th of May to use your noodle and feed a hungry child in South Africa. If you'd like to find out more or if you'd like to get involved, you can take a look at the website, the lunchboxfund.org. And just bear in mind that all it takes is two rand fifty to feed a hungry child for a day and five hundred rand to feed one child for an entire year. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, what began as a simple challenge amongst friends and family to raise awareness of Pompey disease using cycling events throughout South Africa as a platform has evolved into a charity initiative which seeks to help many children and adults with rare conditions. Kelly Duplessis, a mother of two young children, is the chairperson of the Rare Disease Society of South Africa, which aims to assist patients and families affected by rare conditions. Now, founding this organization was not by default, but born out of necessity. Kelly and her husband's firstborn child, Juan showed early warning signs of developmental disorders and at the age of 11 months was diagnosed with Pompey disease. And they're off again tomorrow, in fact, at about five o'clock, I think, for Dash to Durban. <clears throat> Excuse me, but I've managed to keep Kelly up just a little bit late so she can tell us more. Kelly, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm sorry to keep you up. But tell us about Pompey disease. What exactly is that? Uh, Pompeii disease is a neuromuscular disorder that's resultant from an enzyme deficiency in the body. Uh, generally speaking, this enzyme would convert glycogen into glucose, and in the absence of this enzyme, um, a, an accumulation of glycogen happens. Now, this actually, as I mentioned, that your son was diagnosed with this, and this is what's prompted you to start the Rare Diseases Society of South Africa. You must have been quite amazed, as well, probably less amazed than I was when I noticed how many rare diseases there were. I think they're often often called orphan diseases because there's, there's so few children with them that they're not being supported very well. Yeah, that's correct. It, it, it really highlights the neglect um, that you experience with a rare condition, and that is why they refer to as orphan diseases. So you're off tomorrow morning, dashing off to Durban. It's called Dash to Durban. Tell me about that. So the Dash to Durban really is a, it's a race that's put up by a company by the name of Massive Adventures, and it's, uh, it's open to the generalized public, and generally it's unsupported, meaning it's just you and your bicycle and your bag, and it's your, how you get there is up to you. They were very, very kind to give us 12 entries um, for this event free of charge in order for us to do a charity initiative. So we're really excited, but we're also very nervous. Now, this is just tomorrow, but I mean, you are permanently, some of you and all your supporters are permanently cycling somewhere. I mean, I was looking at the yeah. Facebook page. I mean, gosh, every possible cycle race, there's somebody from rare diseases in the race. Well, um, you know, I think for us, it's always about making, taking something that somebody else doesn't necessarily have. And in this case, it's their ability to move around. So we've always made the decision that we reduce sporting events such as cycling and use your mobility to somebody to help somebody that's not necessarily as fortunate. So, settling for Pompey, obviously, given that John has Pompey disease, um, 
really started off as something that we were doing just to raise a little bit of awareness. And it's now, I mean, we're one of the biggest teams in the 94.7 Cypher Challenge every year. So, you know, we've really come out to become quite a reputable team. Now, the Rare Diseases Society, what exactly do you do? Because, I mean, you go onto the, onto the website, for example, and there's a list of different conditions. And then you look at the Facebook page and all the work that you're doing. What exactly are you doing? So, um, t- public awareness is obviously critical. Um, a lot of the times we find that patients are pushing for a diagnosis themselves. It's not necessarily the doctors coming forward with a diagnosis. It's patients continuously going back with new symptoms and saying, I've researched this, I've researched that. So public awareness is always critical. Um, patient advocacy as well. Many of these patients are just simply too sick and too exhausted to fight the struggle in terms of access to health care. So that's one of the big functions that we serve as well. And then it's also just emotional support and connecting patients with each other to make sure that they don't feel isolated and that they do manage to identify with people that have similar conditions to them. Now, this dash to Durban is also in some way helping your son. You, you, you're hoping to take him overseas? Correct. Uh, we've actually never done a fundraiser specifically for my son. I think up until this point, we've always been quite fortunate that we've managed to get him everything he needed. And it's always been that we'd, you know, we'd do these fundraising events and then you'd have five or six other families come forward and you still kind of feel grateful for your problems when you see other people. But uh, we specifically want to take him over to Duke Medical Center, which is in the USA, purely because they're one of the biggest cheating um, facilities for Pompeii in the world. And um, we really feel that the time is right for us to do that now. His condition is changing, and it's very difficult to keep under control in South Africa where we just don't have the same level of testing facilities that they do there. So this particular race is specifically for him. So you, you're riding with Team Juan tomorrow? That's it. John Dash, yeah. Oh, How many of you in the team? Twelve. Twelve of you. Okay. And six hundred and forty k's in oh, three days. No. <laughs> You're a better person than me, Kelly. Honestly, but you're doing it for the with a goal in mind. So I'm sure that you, that's what you're looking at the end, sort of, you know, cycling towards. So it's worth every painful, you know, turn of those pedals. Absolutely. We always say, you know, um, I, 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 I get a little bit of comfort knowing that John. His level of pain, whatever level of pain he's in now, he's always been that way. He's never had a life free of discomfort and free of pain. So we always say that, you know, when our legs are burning up and we're really, really battling to get up that hill, to just remember what it's like for him to do simple daily activities and use that as their inspiration to keep going. It's not easy for them to just give up. Yeah, and as I said, you have a goal in mind here, you know. But the thing that, 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 that always amazes me with people like yourself, Kelly, is that you are put into a situation in which a lot of people would just close ranks and be very insular within the family. But there are special people like yourself, and there are a few of you out there, that will find yourself in a difficult situation and then look at that situation and think, well, how can I help other people in the same situation? Putting yourself out there. And I think that is actually quite remarkable. Well, I think... Um, I think if you don't if you don't turn it into something positive, it'll be something that makes you very bitter, and it'll probably end up taking over your life. So, I'm very happy that I've been fortunate enough to to see the positive and to bring to pull the positive positive out of the situation. And um, we always say that if 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 there's pain and suffering that John's been through in his life manages to benefit just one other person, then it would be worthwhile. 
But the other thing is that you've given hope to so many other people because it's a case, you know, I often think, especially with things like orphan, <clears throat> excuse me, orphan conditions, where for many years people have probably been going around, nobody knew what it was that was wrong with them or their children. There was no support for them. There was no way they could get information. And then here you come along and suddenly there's this almost a home for them. Well, I think, you know, many of the families that we speak to, they, they're so overcome when they find out about us because for exactly that reason. They just say that they've always felt so alone. They didn't realize that there was other people out there. And, um, it's, you know, just finding a place that you can call home with people who actually understand where you can really say what it is that you're feeling without being judged for it, um, I think there's absolutely, it's an invaluable experience to just have that level of support. So we're very, very grateful to have the opportunity and to have identified as many patients as we have in the last few years and uh, to be connected with so, so many people from our community. Now, Kelly, for those of us who aren't quite as energetic as the rest of you and out on the bicycle, what can we do to assist you with this society? Um, volunteering, we always need help with silly things. Uh, sometimes it's just dropping off medication at, at someone's home who can't get to a hospital or helping us uh, deliver food for a family who's in hospital. So we do have a volunteer section on our website, and you can sign up and advertise what your skills are, and if we ever come across a situation where we need them, we'll get in contact with you. Obviously, financial um, assistance is always welcome. And then also just in terms of um, services, be it if you're great with websites, then let us know. If you're great with um, you know, physical activities, let us know, and we'll always make a plan. So there's pretty much something for everybody. If you want to get involved, you'll find somewhere to involve them. Absolutely. We never say no. And most of the information, I've said all the information on the diseases, the rare diseases, is on the website. But if you want to get involved in the day-to-day things that are going on, the cycled races that are coming up, all that sort of thing, all of that's on the Facebook page. Correct. Everything. Uh, we're very active on Facebook, so everything is there and Twitter, otherwise our website. And it's all under rare diseases. They will find you on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> that's correct. Sorry, Karen, I've got quite a bad cough. Oh, dear. Um, our Red Diseases Twitter page is Red Diseases SA, and Facebook is Red Diseases South Africa. Okay, so Red Diseases South Africa on Facebook and Red Diseases SA on Twitter. Correct. And then, of course, the website as well, which is reddiseases.co.za. Correct. Okay, that's great. Kelly, should you be cycling with your bad cough tomorrow, just by the way? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh. not sure. We'll see how I feel tomorrow. I'm not prepared to give it up at this stage, but... Um, Unfortunately, Jean has been sick lately, and he's been in and out of the doctor's rooms, and I'm, I'm pretty certain I've picked up something from taking him backwards and forwards. Oh, well, look after yourself on this rest if you decide to cycle tomorrow, and uh, good luck. For, I hope you raise lots and lots of funds, and if you're off to America shortly, good luck with that too, and hopefully we can catch up with you when you're back. Thanks, Karen, and if I may, um, we've specifically started a Facebook page specifically for this drive, which is called Team John Dash to Durban, and... Um, I've started the process of rewriting John's journey from the day he was born, uh, and I will get up to where he is now. So it's been quite cathartic for me. But I think for any members of the public who are interested to know more about Pompeii, it's a really, really good way of um, walking that journey and seeing exactly what it was like. Right, so Facebook team John dash to Durban, and all the information is on there. Kelly, thank you so much. Look after yourself. Good luck for the race tomorrow. Thank you very, very much. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot. Good night to you.
Kelly Duplessis is the chairperson of the Rare Diseases Society of South Africa, which aims to assist patients and families affected by rare conditions. The website is rarediseases.co.za, and there's cycling exploits and all the other activities on Facebook, Rare Diseases South Africa, and Twitter, Rare Diseases SA. Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening, just after nine, with time to travel. So join me then. It's time now for Stephen Kirker and some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.